So that's what I'm saying. The text is like an object. It's gonna change perspective based on where you're standing. I don't know. Hello? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I missed you, baby sweet. It was a day, hmm? It was a day. Please tell me you're seeing this too. From Seattle, we are drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. All right, Michael, we're back to the only list in all of film that is empirically accurate and uh, 100% correct. Uh, both of ours are. We're the only two in existence uh, that have that type of a list for 2019. Uh, so let's give the people what they came for. Uh, one through five, right after we give them our top three docs in descending order. You're number three. My third favorite documentary of the year i again did not see enough documentaries this year is a film called los reyes it is co-directed by bettina perut and ivan oznikov oznavikov Excuse me. Uh, Los Reyes is the name of the oldest skate park in Santiago, Chile, which is where this documentary is set uh, because it is the home of the documentary's two subjects, which are two dogs named Chola and Football. Um, there are no talking heads in this documentary. There are no um, there's no voiceover. Um, the only real dialogue we hear is from the skateboarders who frequent the skate park as they kind of talk about things that teenagers talk about, buying and selling drugs, doing drugs, talking about girls, um, their kind of troubled home lives. But the uh, perspective of the documentary is firmly with these two stray dogs who live at the skate park. Um, it is in no way an overly precious um, dog film that you might expect, I guess, um, for a documentary about two dogs. Um, it is very much just kind of an observational slice of life work about um, taking up the perspective of a creature that cinema doesn't give a lot of attention to. Mm -hmm. Um I think one of the reasons we go to the movies is just to see the world through the eyes of others. And there's no reason why we shouldn't do that to our four-legged friends. Um, Whether it's in Ketty. Also a great doc. Um, and I I think it's uh, fairly unsparing, right? Because these are these are stray dogs. It's, it's hard to watch. Um, these dogs live in uh, um, inhospitable conditions. But we do see moments um, when when people um, say bring two dog houses to the skate park. Um, some city workers who um, want to give these dogs at least a little shelter over their heads. Um, they are initially quite weary of these new homes, but eventually warm up to them. Um, you get a sense for what a good day is like for these dogs, which is when they find a new tennis ball. A bad day is when the weather is bad. Um, What's really interesting is that, you know, you see these dogs as strays. They're living on, you know, the margins of human life. And 
Additionally, what the documentary does is hone in on the insects that kind of live on these dogs, which sounds Mm -hmm. kind of awful. And it is hard to watch, um, but there is something um, just uh, kind of true about um, uh, nature and how Mm -hmm. creatures kind of live off of of each other. An ecosystem Um, and all that. Yeah. 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 Symbiosis. I think the, the rhythm of the film is phenomenal it's really easy to watch it's not very long um and uh it is just uh an okay time to spend you know 70 minutes with a couple pups i didn't mind and i think it's a really formally accomplished documentary it's called los reyes it'll be available in june for rental cool it's for purchase right now i believe you said from grasshopper films pre-order pre-order gotcha okay then my number three is a little bit different. It is called... Is this still a good time? We have the time you need. We have got to overcome this idea that people don't have the right to criticize our religion just like we criticize everything else. You can't say that the central message of Islam is pacifism, whereas you could say that of a religion like Jainism. I don't accept that there's a correct reading of scripture. There is a link between belief and behavior. How do you talk about this honestly without empowering right-wing illiberalism? You may have the Bible Belt. We Muslims have our own Quran Belt. Islam and the Future of Tolerance. Very different. <laughs> it is uh, It is my, I believe it was my pick uh, halfway through the year as well. Uh, this is a, a documentary picture that recaps a conversation um essentially that was had between um, an atheist and a Muslim reformer. Um, The Muslim reformer's name is Majid Nawaz, uh, and he currently lives in Britain, and he uh, he used to be an an extremist who spent some time in prison with uh, other radicals, um, and that experience changed him. Um, And they they cover that, as well as he does in a number of conversations you can access on a podcast. Uh, the other half is Sam Harris, who has the Making Sense podcast, um, in which he's had conversation, conversations with Majid, as well as uh, Douglas Murray, who has a, a brief part in the documentary. Um, it's just one of those subjects that, you know, we need to interact with. Um, there's not a clear right way to move forward but there is a clear need to have these conversations and um i think that the title kind of says everything you need to know um and i would encourage anyone to watch it it's available for rental on prime um and islam in the future of tolerance is definitely a subject uh, that, that the world has to grapple with and i think that this documentary does a great first step still a blind spot for me one i still need to check out your number two my number two documentary is <laughs> Honeyland, co-directed by Tamara Kutevska and Eljubo Stefanov. I tried my best there. And it has nothing in common with number three. <laughs> Dogs, bees, that kind of thing. Yeah, and outside, uh, what yeah. a good day looks like, what a bad day looks like. It's pretty similar. Yeah, uh, for those unfamiliar with Honeyland, 
Uh, it follows a Macedonian beekeeper by the name of Hatidza Muratova, uh, who lives in a remote village in the mountains of Macedonia with her elderly mother. Uh, her beekeeping practice is thriving until she gets some new neighbors, a family who takes a stab at beekeeping themselves and uh, through a combination of um, incompetence, short-sightedness, and greed threaten to um, ruin not only their own likelihood of success in beekeeping, but Hatidza's as well. Um, For more on this doc, you can go back to Doc Talk Part 3. I think it would have been on drinking the movies. Um, I think there are three things this documentary does quite well that uh, I was quite taken with. One, I think it is a, I think it's an allegory for the value of environmental stewardship. Um, one of the principles of a of Hatidza's beekeeping practice is that she never takes. Um, too much honey, too many of the honeycombs away from the bees in order for them to um, continue to thrive. She can't take everything that they produce. I think there's something there about um, if you're good to the environment, the environment will be good to you. Very quite sim- pretty simple. Uh, secondly, I think it's about being good to your neighbors and um, being cognizant of the impact you have. Um, this is very much a, a kind of... Uh, comedic story in a way until it gets quite tragic about um troublesome neighbors that Mm -hmm. almost everyone can relate to and thirdly i think it's about family because we hear a great deal about hatidza having never married having never had kids of her own Mm -hmm. um and instead devoting her life to um caring for her eugene mother um so i think it um, achieves those by uh, the intimacy that they um, reach with Hatiza, and um, the level of trust is just kind of astonishing. Um, it's available for rental now and highly recommended. I would agree. It's a good documentary. I would highly recommend it. Um, and for anyone that wants an update that's already seen it, she does have her own apartment now in a city. Um, proceeds from the film, I guess, are going to that in some capacity. So if you purchase it or rent it, some of that money will end up with her um, to help her live a life um, at least near people if she's, you know, even if she doesn't have family. I I believe she's living in a city near one of her brothers. um, So she does have human contact again and all that stuff. So, What's your number two? My number two is a very similar film about a woman who grew up in Brazil with a party uh, family, essentially, that was tied to the socialist reformers of Brazil. Um, And it is her experience um, with how the political sphere has changed in Brazil, Um, what appears to be a non-militaristic coup takeover of the government the gangsters that lead um, and back the capitalistic and globalistic success or fall of the country taking over. Um, Maybe it's a little bit different than Honeyland, but, um, you know, um, it's 
it's really fascinating. It's available on Netflix. Um, it really challenged me on what I knew about South American politics and like in general and specifically about Brazil. Um, the, the angle that it presents is very different than the angle that I see on every single headline of the news that I'm fed from Brazil. Um, it's not dissimilar in idea to Oliver Stone's The Putin Interviews, um, although I took those with much different grains of salt. Um, they were, however, extremely informative of the way that, that the Russian media machine works. And I think that this shows me a difference between on the ground experience and the headlines that I get a continent away. This is one of my regrets. I keep seeing this pop up on lists of top docs. Uh, definitely one I will catch up with. It's it's extremely reflective and, and very useful for anyone. I would recommend it. What is your number one documentary of the year 2019? My favorite documentary is called... What happened last week? Five people got shot. Five people got shot. Come to find out, I grew up with the girl. Her and her baby got shot. Baby smaller than your brother. What time I said be inside? When the streetlights come on. When the streetlights come on. When the streetlights come on and y'all still outside, then you punch. You got that, Ronaldo? Yes. What you gonna do when the world's on fire? I'm gonna look for it and not be able to find it for rental anywhere. (laughs) So the distributor is Kim Stim, um, who... Say on their website, it is coming soon to DVD and digital platforms. Hopefully, that is within the next couple of months. Um, again, thankfully, I saw this to... Uh, I, I was able to see this because of an independent theater in Seattle. Which one did you catch it at? I saw that at The Beacon. The Beacon. Thank you to The Beacon. Free plug. Plug, plug, plug. Uh, it's directed by the Italian filmmaker Roberto Minervini, and it's set in New Orleans during the summer of 2007. There are three different strands to it. One follows two young boys who are uh, around the age of 10 or tweens um, who are being raised by a single mother. Their father is uh, in prison. Another strand follows a um, bar owner named Judy, a middle-aged woman who's trying to keep her bar afloat while also caring for an aging mother. Um, that certainly rhymed with uh, a certain strand of Honeyland for me. Mm-hmm. And the third follows the local chapter of the New Black Panther Party as they kind of respond to and protest um, against this wave of uh, racially motivated violence that swept across the South in uh uh, the summer of 2007. Um, most striking about it is this really crisp black and white cinematography um, that is um, always framing these people in the most beautiful of ways. Um, not in the same way to me that something like Black Mother did, where um, sometimes I felt uh, something was a little off about how those characters were um, posing in a way for the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas this is v- much more naturalistic. Um, there, it feels like there's much less, um, I don't know, artifice to it. It's very, it's very, um, just natural in the way he's capturing these people as they go about their lives and not imposing any more narrative on it than whatever just happens to them. Um, and it cuts between these strands in, um, ways that are more poetic than sort of guided by narrative, not trying to like force, more connections than there obviously are about these 
African-Americans um, and the way race is sort of informing different areas of their lives. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It was just how poetically wrought it was and its willingness to just listen. Um, it doesn't um, seek out a arc in the way other great documentaries do. It just wants to be with and listen and hear these people um, as they go through um, troubles that kind of define, you know, our time in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. Um, so I was really moved by it. thought it was gorgeous. Hopefully it comes to digital platforms soon. I would like to see it. But until then, I will let Asif Kapadia's documentary... Diego Maradona be my number one documentary of the year, and I'm pretty sure if I saw any of yours that I haven't seen, it would still be number one. This is a fantastic Ooh. documentary. <laughs> um, yeah, I was spitting a little bit of shade, a little bit of fire. Um, I believe this is another documentary you haven't seen? That's correct. Okay, so it would be your number one. There you go. Um, I don't like soccer. You do. That's how I, I know it would be your number one because this is a documentary about a soccer player who, um, you know, if you remove two letters from his last name, you know, it's it's Diego Madonna. And there there's something fascinating about it to the point where they the way he was perceived by by numerous clubs was to be the savior that that couldn't do any wrong. Um, his duty was to the people, his duty was to the team, his duty was to the club, his duty was to win and to sacrifice himself to do it. And he did that and they never let him go after he did it for them. And it's it's entirely interesting to think about um, modern sports uh, or more modern sports like uh, and, and interactions that we see with clubs trading superstars in soccer, but also with LeBron leaving Cleveland, going to win his titles, coming back to Cleveland, bringing them a title, then leading to L.A., um, that when I watch this movie and I see how they just don't let him leave the club after they trade for him after his first injury, um, it's heartbreaking as you watch this descent into uh, drug addiction, um, gang affiliation, um, and you you get to know the internal politics of a a small part of, of Southern Europe in a, in a really weird way. Um, and when you get to the end, all you feel is empathy, compassion, and hope. And I, I really, really loved this documentary. And the final sentence that I said in my review and that I'll say here is if anybody was going to edit and assemble the footage to tell the story of human history, I would want it to be no one other than Asif Kapadia. You said it's an HBO doc. Mm-hmm. It is interesting the way some HBO docs seem to pop into the conversation and others just don't have the heft behind them marketing wise, I guess. I mm-hmm. mean, I think everybody I've seen who watched this doc really enjoyed it. Um, I feel like it maybe just didn't get the marketing push. That's like maybe they doubled down on Finding Neverland, which I know you were cooler on. Um, uh, well, I yeah, think everyone knows we were cooler on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just kind of surprised given the response that people have had to it being very positive, and yet I feel like it hasn't jumped out into the conversation in the no. way it should since it's available. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that's partially marketing. I think it's also the nature of the film. It is a soccer superstar from Europe, not from America, born in South America, I believe, not born in North America. So there's just it's not Michael Jackson. Yeah, there, there's very little in the way. It's it's not Theranos. You, you know, there's there's very little ties here. And his last documentary film, Amy, was something a lot more Eurocentric that a lot more people clicked on because they loved Amy Winehouse and they still love her. Um, And this just isn't that, but hopefully as the years wear on, this will be as well remembered as I've heard Senna is, which I still have to get to. But um, yeah, that's our top three documentaries. It's time to get back into the meat of the business. What is your number five film on the year? My number five is... Mr. Vidal! Mr. Vidal! Wing! Vidal, l'écrivain? Oui. Die beiden Wiese, die Schiffspassagen. Transit from German filmmaker Christian Petzold. I love this movie a lot. Is this in top 20? Yes, it is. I like it. It was number 13 for a long time. Uh, it stars Franz Rogowski, who was my favorite actor of the year at the mid-year point of 2019. Um, he plays a political refugee in Paris who takes up the identity of a deceased writer to flee to Marseille. And from there, he hopes to uh, find passage to Mexico. Um, he also likes to sit in a cafe. He does. Uh, and eats delicious looking pizza Mm -hmm. and coffee as Europeans tend to do. Mm -hmm. Um, so this is, um, essentially, uh, transposing the events of World War II, um, to present day in the sense that there's no, um, period decor, um, to what we're seeing. Um, we're seeing... Uh, Franz Rogowski's character, Georg, um, flee from this fascist state that seems to resemble like Nazi uh, Germany or Mm -hmm. occupied France, I should say. Um, But um, what we see looks like uh, contemporary France, um, Mm -hmm. which uh, I've described this to uh, people before since I loved it. And multiple people have said, like, what a gimmick. And I don't think it could feel you know, any less like a gimmick. I think it's fascinating when you watch it. I think I understand that response on paper. Um, But I think this is a really interesting hybrid of conventional emotion in a way, because this does become a romance. He meets the wife of the deceased writer whose identity he has taken when he arrives in Marseille. Um, There's a romantic angle there, Um, but it's also about him being caught in um, statelessness, and um and what people without um any hope do to assert their choices yeah absolutely in a critical scene yeah i think uh his performance is great um and yeah that that conventional emotion blended with this kind of um high concept art film is just a really like one of the most original films I think I saw this year. Oh, yeah. Um and I yeah, loved it. Um that's Transit, which is available for rental now. And it's a great movie. 
my number five on the year is a film on nearly everybody's list. It is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. We had the pleasure of going to see this at the closing night of the Queer Film Festival here in Seattle. That's right. Um, And boy, was I not prepared for one of my favorite cinematic experiences of the year. Uh, I think we went right after we finished recording, essentially. Um, Just hopped down to Capitol Hill, went in, ready for some sort of a period piece, And what followed was a a swooning film of desire and deep humanity and artistic reflection and masterful storytelling with with incredible performances from every single actress, not just the top, but the bottom. Um, The the way that they navigate the scenes, um, there's an undercurrent of of taste that, that tells you there's more here, but it doesn't force it down your throat. It lets your own expectation lead you awry. Um, there's a particular scene that I love um, on the beach in a cave. Um, there's some other scenes that I love near the end, following opera, um, looking at a painting. Um, when I think of those moments, I I am stirred. And a, a film that can stir me in retrospect is a is a film that belongs on any of my lists yeah easily the most romantic movie of the year second place being miles and miles and miles away from portrait of a lady on fire but yeah uh ask me tomorrow and it would be on my list no doubt yeah it's a beautiful film so uh that's number five so what are your top or what is your third favorite official soundtrack on the year my Third favorite original score is courtesy of Daniel Lopatin, and it's in. So I want the Celtics to cover. I want the Celtics halftime. I want Garnett points and rebounds. What do you know? I don't know. I just know. Uncut Gems. Uh, it's an electronic score. Um, so much of that movie is just sonic chaos there's people talking over each other and the score is often you know just adding to this commotion that we hear and sometimes can't even make out and that all just adds to the you know forward momentum and intensity of that movie um and uh yeah it's just a dope score i'll leave it at that uncut gems my number three is Dolomite is my name, and fucking up motherfuckers is my game. Oh, he's bad. What'd you do to your hair? You look like a pimp. It's all pretend. I just created a character. Dolomite. <laughs> you a true. Pull on that. Oh, that's oh, a wig. Yeah, that's right. Whatever it takes, I'm ready to do it. I got to be totally outrageous. Dolomite is my name, from Scott Bomer, and... I'm so happy I get to talk about this film at all. It's in my top 20. It's a fantastic comedy. It's probably my number two or three comedy on the year. Um, if not my number one, what a 
it's so special and the score is so fun. Uh, I would encourage anyone to open Spotify, search for Dolomite is my name soundtrack and just have yourself a good old funky time. I think I might have underrated that movie just uh, given how often I feel good when I think about it. Right. I would. We're both smiling already. All I did was say Dolomite is my name. (laughs) Uh, Number two. My second favorite score is in... An Elephant Sitting Still by a prog rock band called Hua Loon, Chinese band. Um, it's mostly um, instrumental guitar with some synth or keyboard, I think, um, that I think just aches with the loneliness and anger of that movie. And sure enough, it's just towards the end of that soundtrack um, that's been primarily instrumental. Do you finally hear some voices, some human voices on it that I think is just uh, in sync with the slightly hopeful note on which that movie ends? Um, I honestly still feel kind of emotional when i listen to it but it's great score that yeah i I cared for that quite a bit too um my number two is uh trent reznor and atticus ross's official or original soundtrack to lord knows i've held on to way too much hate in my life but all we have is now All we have is now. Waves from Tradward Schultz. This is one of my favorite uh, mixtapes of sound I've heard in the decade, not just in the year. And... There's not much I can say. Watch Waves. You will want to listen to the soundtrack following that. Yeah, I do want to watch it again and just concentrate on the sound to kind of see like where that original score blends in with the music because it is kind of subtle, but like you also notice it. Mm-hmm. You're like that's not Kanye West. There's some kind of rumble underneath yep. that that's um, really kind of unsettling. Um, or, or the yeah. way that they get into Animal Collective is, mm. or come out of it. There, there's these little tinges that they do, but then the the mix of it of of selecting those songs and putting them in those moments to under to provide the undercurrent of propulsion to a, a film that needs propulsion because of its segmentation um, and bicameralness is is excellent. Anyways, your number one. My favorite score of the year is in. Atlantics, a film by 
uh, Matty Diop, and the uh, music is by an artist named uh, Fatima Al-Qadiri. Um, it's an electronic score, and I'll talk more about the plot of that movie later, but the ocean itself figures largely mm. into the construction in the form of that movie. Um, and there's, The fire uh, also had a dope sound. Oh, yeah. Um, it uh, has uh, just a, a, a hypnotic, mesmerizing quality that I think um, is, is very much evocative of the rhythm of the ocean that that movie keeps returning to um and uh very listenable even on its own uh outside of the movie i would agree my favorite soundtrack of the year is not an original soundtrack but it is an awesome one it is Climax's assemble uh, assembly of songs and the music and sound that underrides them um, in the film that you just mentioned, Atlantics. The one of the music supervisors of my pick is one of the music supervisors in your film. Uh, so there's some very good work being done um, sound-wise by Steve Boyer. Um, it's also in conjunction with Pascal Mayer, and I just. When certain songs play, I have flashes of the images that we see in Climax, and I couldn't imagine it any other way. I love the score, I love the film, and I loved making these picks. What is your number four, Michael? My number four film of the year is... Ashes Purest White, Chinese film by the filmmaker Xia Zhangka. It is a gangster movie. It is about a woman who is the girlfriend to a gangster in a small mining town who um, is uh living more or less well until um one fateful night she takes the fall for a crime um that puts her in jail for i want to say five his five years um she takes the fall for this gangster she is dating um and it uh goes on to be the story of um her relationship with this man at the same time that it kind of charts um uh, uh, the, the change in China over this same period of time. This was, um, sh- this has footage from over like a 15 year period or something like that. It's not boyhood. You're not watching a boy go from the age of four to 18 where you see some radical physical transformation, but he does use all these different, um, uh, film stocks and switching from film to digital, etc. to, um, kind of double down on this idea of um, the way the world is changing as this woman is sort of um, navigating the next chapter in her life. Um, I think it's just uh, really 
thrilling as a genre piece. It is a gangster movie. I think it has my scene of the year, which is um, when she um, stands up for her boyfriend and does something that is what puts her in jail. Um, But it's also, I think, partly about uh, male ego and how hard it is for him to come back to her and the life he knew um, before that night. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, along the way, she on multiple occasions is conning men as she tries to work her way back to this gangster boyfriend who she's trying to track down. Um, and for a gangster who spoke so highly of loyalty and what that means, um, to gangsters, she is, you know, miles and miles, um, away from him in terms of how loyal she is to him. Um, I think it's an interesting relationship story as an interesting portrait of China over these years. Uh, and it's available now. I would agree. The rental. It's interesting. It's definitely good. I had some complicated I had a complicated experience with it, but I think it's fascinating and absolutely worth interacting with. Yeah. Um, it was on K. Austin Collins' list, I think, who um, paired this with uh, The Irishman for his favorite pick of the year. Mm. Do you think there's connections there beyond it being gangster movies or not so much? Yeah. Something about how the world is changing. Um, I, I would personally say that I saw Ashes Purest White a little bit more about a Chinese citizen's relationship to the changing country and not really knowing where they're at, whereas The Irishman is a little bit more about um, the youth changing what's acceptable based on what they saw in the past. Um, So it's a little bit different, but I definitely see the symmetry there. Um, My number four is a film that we might be talking about a little bit more, but um, might as well dig into it right now, and that is... Hello. Therefore. You can't speak. You can't move. But this opens you up to the influence. It breaks down your defenses. Trust me. Right? Ari Aster's Midsommar. Starring Florence Pugh and Jack Rayner and Chidi from The Good Place. And oh boy, do I love this gosh darn movie. Uh, this came out in July. Um, I gave it a perfect five then. I had a chance to rewatch it in theaters with the director's cut a few months later. Gave it another perfect five. Uh, This is my personal favorite film from Ari Aster. I totally get people preferring Hereditary. Um, Hereditary didn't even crack my top ten. This is, you know, quite a That's not right. I think it was on your top ten. It was not. That can't be. It is right. I'm going to check your own favorites. You you feel welcome <laughs> to. Um, yeah, no, this is, um, and it, it's not specifically because of the filmmaking or the subject matter. It's simply the um, the way that the narrative is told and the uh, ability and the sheer uh, 
skill that Florence Pugh elicits in this narrative of having a complete emotional breakdown and also playing certain scenes very coyly, uh, very cleverly, you know, in, in retrospect, um, essentially everything changes after she takes mushrooms and looks in the mirror at herself in a dark room. Um, but when you just walk out of the movie, you don't quite think about it like that. Um, but the more distance I get, the, the more I appreciate the tiny little bits as well as, um, having a chance to watch it at home digitally, see a rune on the wall, look in a rune book at exactly what that is, and then read into that a little bit more. This is just a, a gift that keeps on giving. Um, and I, I absolutely love it. I get why other people don't, but, um, those people are wrong as we went over at the beginning of this episode, cause this is the officially correct list. <laughs> Yeah, I remain sort of of two minds about Midsummer. I gave it a really high rating. I think I gave it a four and a half out of five. Um, Not high enough. I, I, I do really like this movie in a way. I described it in my review as a nerve-shredding nightmare of sunny psychedelia, and it still feels like a right description just based on how I experienced it. Um, I definitely prefer Hereditary. The problem I think I still have with that is that it feels to me like he's maybe just taking a little bit of satisfaction in this, in these grueling things he's putting the characters through. Um, I think about that opening sequence where the camera's, you know, floating throughout Florence Pugh's character's house um, and showing us, you know, how this girl has um, uh, killed herself and her parents Mm -hmm. um, and how uh, that, doesn't feel terribly empathetic to me. I don't know. I, I, I still struggle it at the same time that like, it's so kind of formally impressive. So I, I would agree that there's something there where in that scene, Florence isn't present. There is no emotional focus. It's a neutral presentation of death. And then we spend time with the person who's directly affected by that outside of a neutral firefighters paramedics doing their jobs we see what it's like for this sister and this daughter to have lost these people to me that's that's why it's good i don't want you to have the same bias when the character is not present that you do when the character is at at some level of filmmaking um and not in all stories but in this story i really liked it because of how messed up we get and entangled in what's actually happening but to me, the it's shot it with the same kind of formal virtuosity, or if that's not a word, virtuosity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's it's still shot in the same way that it, that the rest of the movie is. I don't think the form tells me that, that this is a neutral look at death. Versus, I mean, it is like this kind of dazzling tracking shot through the house, which is like, wow, look at what has happened. Versus, I don't know, had it just been like a shot. Um, of the bodies or something like that. I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to tell him how to make his movie. I can just say that that felt to me like it was kind of impressed by the situation somehow. Okay. Um, I, I definitely have a transference from the first group of dead bodies to the last group of dead bodies. There's a, mm-hmm. There's an extreme emotional change for me when I view the film. And to me, it's you know, it's informed by the character building and the narrative, but it's also the way that the camera shows me 
the deaths in there um, and the way that we hear the shrieking and um, that there's just something very coy, but I, I can't say that I don't see it. I see a major difference between the beginning deaths and the end deaths um, in presentation, but I think that they're entirely having a conversation. And I think that the deaths in the middle, um, both voluntary and involuntary, um, just breathe life into the debate of the film and the value of human life and all sorts of questions. And I, I love that Ari Aster makes a movie like this where we can even fight about uh, death scenes. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the line from Manola Dargis's review that I have not been able to shake ever since I read it was that um, in this film, he's, demonstrating virtuosity without vision and there is this sense to me that it is um formally accomplished but maybe a little empty form um i don't know we're at an impasse aren't we i i would disagree and i i would say that (laughs) that whatever you're reading into there might be uh an attribute of the character Mm. all right that's midsummer from ari aster an excellent movie. And now we are on to our favorite actors of the year. We'll start with the supporting actors and actresses. Why don't you lead us, Michael? Who you got? My favorite supporting actors of the year were Joe Pesci and Al Pacino in The Irishman. Cheater. I kind of have a tie between them. Cheater. Joe Pesci is, you know, the supporting player everyone adores, rightfully. He's incredible. I couldn't really decide whether Al Pacino is a lead versus a supporting character here really feels to me like De Niro is the lead mm-hmm. and it's about how he's relating to these different people. Um, I still absolutely adore Joe Pesci's performance, but um, there have been little like snippets and images that I've seen just, you know, while perusing um, various film sites and, and whatnot uh, ever since seeing the Irishman that keep reminding me of how much fun I had watching Al Pacino um like there's a shot of him at that banquet dinner where he's eating his steak and looking down at Tony Pro with this look of like contempt mm-hmm. and just in that look it's like hilarious and you know kind of awful at the same time not awful I think it's just actually hilarious um there's him flipping out at his, at his staff um yelling at Tony Pro for wearing shorts to a meeting I, I had so much fun watching him um but and there's then, also the quiet moment where he checks on De Niro before they go to bed. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think he has the line of the year when he says, I heard you paint houses, which I think should have been the name of this movie. I, like I do too. that way more than The Irishman. Um, but uh, together, you know, they are just the definition of supporting players in, um, you know, telling us about, telling us more about Robert De Niro's character. Um, line of the year? Ray Liotta might might have a little bit of quibble there. What's his? Start from a place of unreasonable. Oh, that's pretty good too. <laughs> Both of them are are big time Al Pacino acting in those moments. Oh yeah, love um, it. No, that's a great selection. All right, so my favorite supporting actor this year is Joe Pesci. We can move on to your favorite supporting actress. This is so great. I love it when we move quick. My favorite supporting actress is Rebecca Ferguson in the movie Doctor Sleep, which I did not love, but I had a so we decent have two enough time actress with. selections from Stephen King films. 
what's the other Stephen King film? It too. Oh yeah, hadn't even thought about that. Weird. That I don't even like him very much. He, he I know you don't. Wiggling his way in here. Well, the, you had a complaint about Jessica Chastain. To be clear, <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Uh, yeah, Rebecca Ferguson as Rose the Hat in Doctor Sleep. A ridiculous name for a character, but this is a ridiculously good performance. Um, she is deliciously evil. I love the scene where like she's blown back in a grocery store when she opens up a um, you know refrigerated case <laughs> and the look of just astonishment by the power of this girl she wants to whose soul she wants to eat um, is just so convincing. Um, I just had a blast watching her. She's just so evil. I love it. It's great. Rebe- Rebecca Ferguson. Um, yeah, I haven't had that much more fun watching an actress this year. She is fantastic, and that is one of the funnest performances, uh, wholly. Uh, my favorite supporting actress is a extremely well-known up-and-coming actress by the name of Joanna Ribeiro. She is in Don Quixote, or rather the man who killed Don Quixote, um, She's in both the original film that we see flashbacks to um, or flashbacks to the moments when they're shooting it. And then she is in the more uh, psychedelic, weird reality ladder episode and is it encounters Adam Driver in a cave. She she has a lot of different timelines um, or artifices to her character. Um she expressed such great comedic range and ability, um, completely transferred herself to look like she was a 17 year old with braces and was a a young waitress into looking like a beautiful princess. Um, and to looking like a, like, you know, she was beautiful, but kind of a rundown wife. There, there's just so many layers to the performance that she gets to give. I, was astounded when I saw it in theaters. I was astounded when I rewatched the film last night. I really think that she's going to go places. And Joanna Ribeiro is my selection for Best Supporting Actress of the Year. I like it. We're on to Best Actors of the Year. On to Best Actor and Best Actress. Oh boy, we're, we're getting to crunch time. Here we are. Show's almost over. My favorite actor, or favorite performance, rather by an actor in a film this year was by Antonio Banderas in Pain and Glory from Pedro Almodovar. Um, um, you said the laundromat wrong. You want to try that again? Oh, yeah. Don't even <laughs> remind me that he also did that this year. Let's focus on Pain and Glory right now. I'm going to try to block that Michael's out. closing his eyes and just meditating. Yeah. Uh, I think maybe my favorite moment... Um, with him in this movie is when uh, this filmmaker he plays is uh, visited by a former lover mm, and powerful. Yeah. He, he's um, he doesn't start crying as he's catching up with his former lover, but his te- but his eyes kind of well up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just haven't felt like an actor imply so much emotion felt without actually showing it. Um, quite like that recently um it just felt so real and and just full and rich and i just wanted to give him a big hug and then and then he has a 
kiss with this former lover, which I just think is oh, so man. full of, of of longing and that sense of what could have been. And the yeah performance, I think, is just terrific. The Antonio elevator Binders. scene as well. The which one? The elevator scene. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, on that happy note, my favorite actor is from a film that we just talked about last episode. Mads Mikkelsen in Arctic. The um, the ability to use his body to tell the story and to allow his body to be shot in such a way that the story can be told is masterful. You know, we're talking about a, a first-time director working with a masterful actor who has had bad roles or has had good performances in bad movies, I'll say. Um, and allowing himself to be the entire subject of uh, what is essentially a one-man survival film that is him against nature and then him in pursuit of help. Um, I don't want to give too much away. It is a magnetic performance that I have not seen the equal to. There's a lot of um, great performances from Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt and Adam Driver that I love that are these great performances filled with dialogue. But very rarely do we get a performance from an actor that is essentially a silent performance that is a, a man doing work to stay alive. And um, th- this even outweighed, I forget the name of the actor in The Hidden Life, but it, it outweighed that. And it is very similar in the the nature of a, a man against something bigger. And um, when I give credit to the film, you know, before the director, I have to give credit to that actor. And that movie doesn't work with, I can't think of anybody else that it would work with. It's like imagining All is Lost without Robert Redford. I just can't do it. Yeah, you mentioned Leonardo DiCaprio, and I was thinking about him in The Revenant, another kind of outdoor survival mm-hmm. movie in a way, and how, um, you know, just big that performance is. Yes. He's groaning and crawling and moaning. Um, and I, I do like that performance, I think, but there is something about how just difficult I have to think the production of Arctic was. Mm-hmm. But Mads Mikkelsen is like, relatively composed he's not having a good time don't get me wrong but he does seem to have like himself together in a way that i can only imagine like has to have been so difficult if you're like just you know ridiculously cold and miserable and yet he seems to remain level-headed like that's kind of insane it's the same to me it's very it's not the same it's very similar to the man that we saw in valhalla rising It, it is a full body performance where your speech is done with your actions and he's so powerful at that. So powerful. I love it. Who's your favorite actress? My favorite actress of the year. Sorry. Who's your most empirically correct actress? Because we are not wrong. Scientifically proven. Uh Uh-huh. Is Zhao Tao in Ash is Purest White. Nine out of ten dentists agree. (laughs) I could just as easy, just as easily have picked Honor Swittenburn um, in the souvenir. And um, I thought was, you would have. Who was my pick at the mid-year point? I just wanted to change it up because I remember wrestling at the mid-year point between them, and I was still wrestling with them now. So I just felt like you gotta give an love. even flip. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I I think there's always something a little hard for me to 
um, pay attention to foreign language performances in the same way because, you know, I just don't understand pitch as much and that kind of thing. You know, voice is huge in a performance. And, and we're also looking down. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. At the subtitles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I keep thinking about these episodes in the film where she's conning different men and she's kind of wielding these glances to take advantage of them. Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes, you know, she's deliberately looking, you know, a little in need of help or something like that. Um, versus the glance she gives to a woman who says this former lover of hers is now seeing someone else. And she stares her down and says, I want him to tell me myself. Um, I just think those are some of the most powerful looks I've seen an actress give. That was a dope scene though. Yeah, it's great. Um, or the confidence during the kind of centerpiece where this crime takes place that sends mm-hmm. her to jail. Um, it, yeah, great performance. My favorite actress of the year is very similar to all those Hemmings and Hines I just made for Mads Mikkelsen. My favorite actress here is Sophia Butella in Gaspar Noé's Climax. Once again, this is a full-bodied performance. She does talk quite a bit more. But the nature of her performance is one of dance. It is one of physicality. It is um, different than Mads because she's not anchoring herself against the nature of reality. She's um, attempting to embrace the altered change of reality with an entire dance troupe and uh, changing scenery of, of songs and a very complex arrangement of mood, incredible camera choreography, um, this is when I think about the decade, not just this year, I'm going to have thoughts of Sophia doing the, um, the various dancing she does here. And I never really cared for her as an actress before this, to be honest. Um, so th- this is a big turnaround for me. She was in, a one of Margot Robbie's production companies, um, action films, uh, hotel something Artemis, maybe, um, it was like a, it was just a B action film and she was one of the main characters and I was really disappointed and I thought I didn't like her as a performer, but, um, this changed me. And then she also had a, a brief performance in an Amazon prime show, um, modern love, I think it's called. And that really, really won me over. She was opposite of, uh, a fella who I don't remember the name of who was in our 10 Cloverfield lane. And it is really special. So if if you're interested, check out Climax or check out that one single episode on on Prime Video Streaming for free of Modern Love because she really has something. She was in Atomic Blonde, correct? I believe so. I didn't see that film. I did not like that movie. Oh, really? I did not like it. I think it looks fun. Still want to see it at some point. James McAvoy has a fun performance. Charlize mm. Theron does kill some people. I would stick with Mad Max Free Road if I was you, because I can predict how that's going to go. Uh, but on to number three. What is your third favorite feature film of the year? We're really getting into the big ones here. We're telling people the 9 out of 10 dentist approved version of reality. My third favorite movie of the year is... I know I wasn't a good dad. I know that. I know that. I was just trying to, to protect all of you. From what? You didn't see what I see, what I've been through. A friend of ours is having a little trouble. A friend at the top. 
Hiya, Frank. This is Jimmy Hoffa. Glad to meet you. Big business and the government is on the attack! You want to be a part of this fight? A part of this history? Whatever you need me to do, I'm available. Martin Scorsese is the Irishman. Ooh, I like it. You like this movie, okay? I do. It's my number seven. Yeah, I didn't have this on my list of the most anticipated movies of the year. I just thought eh. well i think then we didn't know if it was even going to come out this year yeah i, that, I that think it was like once possible. upon a time in hollywood where we just didn't even know if it was going to come out this year like mm-hmm. uh killing the barbarians we still don't yeah. know um but i uh, i absolutely went for it i really responded to the elegiac mournful mood of it um the performances across the board i think all the acting is exceptional um, and this idea that all these gangsters whose fates we know as soon as we meet them um, are going to wind up killing each other or in prison when all they really want are really simple pleasures. Things like the ice cream sundae that Al Pacino w- loves so much or like Robert De Niro just wanting to connect with his daughter or Joe Pesci's character really wanting to connect with Robert De Niro's daughter. Um, or Joe Pesci's character really wanting to dip bread into wine. Absolutely. I think, yeah, we talked about that a little bit when we discussed The Irishman. I, mm-hmm. I, I kind of think food is an interesting um, part of this movie. Um, and how sort of pointless um, so much of their violence is. Um, I was just in completely enmeshed with the mob here and... You know, like any Scorsese movie, you like seeing the the mechanics of this organization, um, but the, the the very real humans within it. Um, I think regret is, you know, a, a dominant theme. And yeah, I still kind of wrestled with that with Robert De Niro's character, the extent to which he does regret certain things, I think is really interesting. Um, and uh, it's just immaculately... Crafted. There are so many scenes individually that I just want to rewatch. Um, like Al Pacino talking about how you rush a gunman, but not a guy with a knife. Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci's character at a gas station meeting for the first time. I don't know. There's just dozens and dozens of moments that feel um, really, really rich with meaning, but are really easy to watch. It's a mm-hmm. long movie, but easy, easy. Viewing All the me. moments are smooth. Yep. All right. My number three is, once again, not a feature film. Go on. My number three is... I jumped. (laughs) Nothing happened the way I imagined. Let me, Miss Hazarova. I live here? We travel into another dimension. Into other versions of ourselves. <laughs> Do you understand what we're on the edge of here? It's godlike, Prairie. The OA Part 2, in conjunction with. That's what we do, though, isn't it? We take what hurts and we turn it into a big gag, and we're singing and we're dancing. And the audience, they're yucking it up, they're laughing so hard. They don't realize that all they're laughing at is a person in agony, a person who's peeled off his own skin. Where's that smile, Bobby? 
I want to do is be with you. I love you. Fosse Verdon, episode one. I'm confused. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So the OA, um, as anyone that knows what that is, also knows, was canceled this year after making one of the highest single season rated seasons of television ever and one of the greatest cinematic experiences in long-form storytelling I've ever had. Britt Marling's by far my MVP. She produced, wrote, um, I believe, assistant directed, acted. She basically did anything you could do to make art um, in this visual medium on this project. And the way that the show ended season two was one that blew every single individual's mind that watched the show and all anyone wants is to see part three consider this my plea at number three to get the oa part three additionally fossey verdon michelle williams won a best actress role for this sam rockwell did not win a best actor award but was nominated and deserves attention margaret qualley's in here this is um This is prestige limited series at its best. Uh, I would encourage anyone with a Hulu subscription to turn it on and at least watch the pilot. That'll tell you right away whether or not this is for you. And um, if you don't like it, just turn on Netflix and watch the OA part two. Both ones I still need to catch up with. And I doubt you will because they're TV. You don't play around in the lens format. Will you allow me to just do the first episode or am I even going to be able to do that? Will I just be so hooked? Oh, you won't be hooked. You don't like TV. We'll see. (laughs) Michael's going to get back to us next episode and tell us how he liked Fosse Verdon Part 1. Tune in to that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We have our top three directorial debuts in descending order. What's your number three directorial debut, Michael? It is... You're on holiday? Yeah, me and my friend, a bunch of friends together uh, in the villa. Holiday by the filmmaker Isabella Eckloff. It is about a young woman named Sasha, played by Victoria Carmen Son, as she is vacationing with her small-time drug lord boyfriend and his crew in the Turkish Riviera when she starts to take up an interest in someone else, not her boyfriend and not someone in the crew. Um, this uh, is a very, very tough watch. Um, the To the extent that it has been talked about this year, it's been talked about for um, the abuse that this young woman endures at the hand of her gangster boyfriend which we don't even see in the american version of the film right there have been different edits of this on different platforms Uh, this is the first film since irreversible that's been talked about in contention for the most uh painful rape scene that you'll see since irreversible i mean the nightingale had a brief conversation but I, I don't think that you can compare what happens in the Nightingale to Reversible, but my understanding is that Holiday is, is very uh, painful. Yeah, I, it is. Um, 
more explicit, I think, than both. Um, it is um, fake. <laughs> Let's be very clear about that. This was this is a fake scene. This is mm-hmm. there is a, a prosthetic involved. Um, okay. And 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 whatnot. Um, but yeah, there is one key scene of, of well, sexual so, so is irreversible. To be right, clear. right, yeah. Just to cover our bases yeah. here. <laughs> yes, everyone is okay. Um, maybe tr- deeply, deeply troubled, even by having participated in it. I cannot imagine. Yeah. I cannot imagine, like, to be abundantly clear. Like, it is extraordinarily difficult to watch, let alone imagine acting, no matter yeah. how it's done. Um, but I think the direction is very distanced from it, It's the directed violence. by a woman, correct? It is. Yeah. Um, I think it, there's this very sort of clinical approach where the camera, there are very few close-ups. It's always literally kind of distant from the characters. Um, and I don't doubt that someone more familiar with, like, the psychology of the abuse could maybe take this movie to task for getting certain things right or wrong. But I think this movie, with its form, is telling us something about... Um, the the consequences of on this woman's um headspace by having um gotten wrapped up in this horrifically violent um relationship with the man and what happens when she kind of sees a way out of it um it's got this really interesting look because it's very colorful which you wouldn't expect from a movie that i'm describing as so harrowing um but these colors really pop as they're going around this kind of resort town that's on, mm-hmm. it's on it's in, it's on a beach um and i yeah i just am kind of fascinated with the commitment to um this woman's um perspective i think you know movies don't want to often for fine reasons don't want us to spend so much time with someone that's going through something so awful but i think there's also something kind of empathetic because it's not unreal um yeah, I don't know. It's a tough watch, um, but it has stuck with me for sure. I it, whenever it comes up, I think of I believe the film is called Revenge, mm-hmm. which is kind of a similar idea. But I gather is revenge is a little bit more violent and um, enjoyable in the sense of getting revenge than Holiday. There is no revenge involved. Absolutely, uh, definitely not. That is not what I wanted to hear. But that's fine. <laughs> Um, I think that is part of the conversation is that you think it might go that way. Um, and, and it goes in a very different direction. That's, that's much more troubling. Um, but, uh, so it's more complex. That's still interesting. Yeah. I could be taken down by someone who says this is not at all how, you know, abused women usually act. That's entirely possible. I just felt convinced by the form that something, that something about this character felt right. My number three film of the year is a film that I haven't seen pop up on, or number three directorial debut of the year is not something I've seen pop up on any conversations, really. And that is. How long have you been in prison? 12 years. And how long from the thought of the crime to the actual crime? Split second. The Mustang. Um, I don't know how to pronounce her name correctly, so I'll just make an attempt here. Uh, first time director, Laura de Clermont-Tonnerre. 
and she has Matthias Schoenertz, Bruce Dern, Jason Mitchell, Connie Britton, Gideon Adlin, Josh Stewart, and Thomas Smittle in her first time film. Uh, this is a film about a man who has a complex background. He's in prison for a reason, um, and he has an opportunity to participate in a program um, with breaking horses um, and later selling them to help earn profit for the jail. Um, and it's a it, it's a really good program that there's actually a lot of data for how great it is that they're pulling from a lot of jails. Um, and this is just one of those middle of the year movies that I went into thinking this is another lean on Pete, the writer type of thing. I'm going to get bored. I'm not going to care for it. And I was completely enraptured in Matthias Schoenert's performance, the, the lens and the way that the jail is portrayed, um, some weather events that the director conveys are, are just so well and meticulously um, sewed together in, in editing. And it's just a different version of prison than I've ever seen. And when I see a, a first-time director show me something I haven't seen before with the camera, I'm always excited. And the the collaboration with those performers and her um, just cemented it into one of my most memorable experiences. Even though it's a top 50 film for me, this is one of those top 50 films that it was never going to make number 10, but I could see it in my top 20. And it's such a, a shame that no one's talking about it. I don't know why it, it's so tempting to doubt horse movies uh-huh <laughs> <laughs> they're getting a bad rap apparently they are fabulous creatures yeah. but we're always like eh, we saw the black stallion movie. there's nothing else to it <laughs> we saw disney's spirit there's no more <laughs> uh one i have not seen um i know manola dargis in the new york times was a big fan of that one wrote something like it shouldn't work, and yet it does. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it was, I, I, I like that review a bit. Um, Your number two. My number two is a film called... Do you know what happened? I never would have left you like that. We both know that those charges are bullshit. Bullshit! Nobody made me get drunk. Nobody made me... So go- what? Who gives a shit what you did? He thinks this is not normal. I know things like this happen to someone every day. I don't want help. I just want to know what happened. Share by a filmmaker named Pippa Bianco. Which I did not expect this. So I have cheated slightly with my top debuts because you would expect an elephant sitting still to be on this list since it made my top ten. But by excluding it here, since it is on my top 10, I got to squeak in one more. You know, I do those kind of things. Okay. Okay. I, I still am surprised that this movie is on this list compared to some of the other things that, that we've seen directorial debuts from. So, I, I mean, specifically my number two, but we'll get there in a moment. Go ahead. We'll get there. Uh, this is about <laughs> a high school girl who... Gets passed out drunk in a party, wakes up with no memory of what happened, and discovers in a the next day or two that 
a video of her getting taken advantage of by a boy or two at this party has gone viral at her school. It's a little unclear in the video who exactly uh, these boy or boys were. And it's the story of her trying to kind of unravel the, what what exactly happened. Um, not that it's a mystery, but that is withheld from us for most of the movie's runtime. Yeah, to me it's more about what how she feels about it is what the film is about. 100%. Um, it's, it very quickly um, comes to the attention of faculty and parents and even local news um, mm-hmm. that she has been um, assaulted. And it's very much about uh, how awful that is for someone who's already been through something terrible um, when it becomes public mm-hmm. and the kind of pressure and stigma that that comes about from that. And the um, expectation that others yeah, have and, for her choices. Yeah. And I think this has very much been probably written off as a Lifetime movie. Um, and I just think that is a such a discredit to the direction and the lead performance. Um, the actress's name is Rihanna Barreto, um, which I, I think is a terrific performance. She was really close to being on my st- uh, uh, really close to being my pick for a star is born this year. Um, I just think she suggests so much with with the the physicality of her performance about what this girl is going through. Um, And the direction is pretty restrained. I think it could have been so didactic and kind of talky or condescending, right? And being a a lesson in um, sexual violence and social media. It is about those things, but I think it's a a better movie than than it sounds Um, that... uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's an impressive debut about a, a worthwhile subject at the risk of sounding um, capital I important. <laughs> it is a worthy subject. I, I don't think that it's formally something that, that spoke to me it is maybe where I'd, I'd have a little bit of difficulty there. Um, my number two. You two stick together. I always come back to the old house. What if it's empty? What if we just peeked inside? We could throw parties. You could put on one of your plays. We could yell. It is this house. Our old house. That's not your old house and that's not your neighborhood. Hey, if you're going is the last black man in San Francisco from Joe Talbot, first time feature film director. His film stars Jimmy Fails, Danny Glover, and Jonathan Majors, who I talked about earlier. And this movie was striking. It did um, informal things with a great formal presentation. Um, the way that it would do that weird uh, reverse or steady shot when they were the uh, boys were skateboarding together um the the way that it would shoot the interiors of the home um i just think about a lot of striking imagery and and then the fact that he also co-wrote the screenplay 
um, and the the moments in this film that are some of my favorite um, dialogue moments on the year. Um, the the way that they present the um, the play upstairs. That this is a really special filmmaker. I'd put him in the same conversation conversation as Corey um, Finley, who we put um, a, a lot of hoopla on. Uh, two years ago now, is that right? When Thoroughbreds came out? Yeah. Maybe they right. pushed it back to January so it could get 2018 attention. Can't recall, but um, that he he seems very strikingly similar into someone who can kind of create a stage play look with real life um, set pieces um, and, and use the form to strike an image that feels different you know it's um what's the movie with army hammer and lakeith stainfield and tessa thompson Uh, sorry to bother you yeah it's kind of like that you know there's there's a weird there's there's a weird to the movie you know it's not quite reality but it certainly is also someone's reality and the the way that that's visually conveyed for a first-time filmmaker it's exciting i'm i'm ready for more yeah I feel like I maybe just need to give it another go. Um, like I said previously, I, I did not respond to it in a big way. And yet every time I think about it, I kind of think about the ways in which it does work. You know, it kind of has that storybook look. And I think that makes so much sense since it's a story about this guy who's kind of telling himself and his friend a story about this house. Um, mm-hmm. That's why it's so full of meaning to him and Jonathan Majors ends up literally telling a story in a play. Um, I think that that all really kind of fits together. I think I just, um, I don't know, just, just the, uh, the lack of grit in some way just felt kind of missing to me. And some of the the conversation felt just, um, not quite as thick as I was hoping, but, um, I should revisit it. No doubt. I agree. You should. What is your number one directorial debut on the year? That is... Atlantics by Matty Diop. I thought this might make your list. I guess it's just on mine. <clears throat> I I I definitely thought about it. Must I, all, all three of these though are higher on my actual list as well. So yeah, um, I think this is one very likely to just jump into my top ten on rewatch. Um, it kind of took me up by surprise. Um, when I first watched it. I think it, it took us where, both by surprise. It, because yeah. of where it goes. Um, but this is set in Dakar, Senegal. Um, it's about a young girl who is um, arranged to be married to one boy, but is in love with another. Um, the boy she is in love with is a construction worker um, working on a high-rise building and hasn't been paid for his work in months and um in with the hope of a with more opportunities for himself he um 
leaves Dakar. He sets sail on the ocean and hopes to find um, uh, more opportunities for himself. Um, I'll just kind of end the plot discussion there without giving too much away, but this is um, an atmospheric and haunting kind of film. Um, the score plays a big part in that. Um, I think the lead performance is very good, but it is so much more about um, mood that that makes it just so transfixing. It did feel to me like a movie that might um, work in a double bill with transit. Um, I would agree. Because of the themes of migration and the ghosts. Um, I'll not say more than that, but Georg, as I described in transit, takes up the identity of, um, a dead writer in transit and something similar occurs in Atlantics that I still haven't quite shaken. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It's, it's still kind of haunts me when I think about it. Uh, it is Atlantics. It's streaming on Netflix by Matty Diop. It is, and it's excellent. My number one directorial debut of the year is... Can you squeeze? Like this, squeeze. Yeah, that's good. That's fine. Joe Penna's Arctic. Surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise. I'm nothing if not consistent. So, since we've already talked about that plenty, what is your number two film of the year, Michael? My number two film of the year is... I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Marvin. Put it there. That's your son? No, it's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. <laughs> All the shooting. <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? <laughs> Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. From Quentin Tarantino. This was not even close to being on my most anticipated films of the year. The trailer dropped. I was still not very interested in this movie, and I totally went for it. I've never been just a, a diehard Tarantino lover. I'm, I don't know, kind of hit and miss, I guess I could say. Um, always, you know, impressed by his control of the craft, no doubt. But um Sometimes they leave me feeling a little queasy. I don't think that's unusual at all. But um, I very much went for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie. DiCaprio plays a TV actor primarily working on Westerns in 1969 L.A. This is very much an ode to classic Hollywood in its final hours. We knew in advance that this movie was about the Manson murders. Um, I just did not expect something. Um, it's weird for me to use the word nostalgic, which is a word that has been very much associated with this movie because I didn't, I didn't live with this period. I don't think I even had much of an interest in watching the kinds of things that 
DiCaprio's character worked on. Like, this is an area of Hollywood that I uh, I didn't live through. Agreed. Um, but it is very much about um, this this uh, period of Hollywood, this, this cycle of Hollywood coming to a very violent end. Um, and uh, kind of what could have been, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, even if there are things about the era that are that are kind of troubling and that are okay to leave behind, there's just always something a little wistful about um, the cycles of Hollywood and um, the good times that we'd had. Yeah, one hundred percent. And I think there, the movie has an admiration for DiCaprio's um, obsession with his craft. Um, my f- favorite scene, or actually, I have a, a couple scenes that I particularly love, but one is when he's working on this Western called Lancer. He's the bad guy and he jacks up his first take at it, goes back to his trailer, throws the fit and then returns and is clearly so determined to get it right. And he's the kind of, you know, actor that we that would just kind of uh, shrug off because it's, it's a TV Western, mm-hmm. but he, nothing is more important to him than giving it, everything he can possibly give. Um, and, you know, it's, yeah, it's about the the people who don't make it from one cycle to the next um, for, for different reasons. And um, I'm still troubled by the ending to some extent. Um, I'm not. I don't think I uh, need to avoid spoilers here because i think most people have seen once upon a time in hollywood it's been out for half a year i think uh <clears throat> it's, it's safe. right now it's safe i think what helps me uh watch the scene where these you know girls are getting torched and whatnot some people i think you know feel like it's retreading what tarantino <clears throat> has already done for me it kind of helps that it's an allusion to his own filmography because it calls attention to this violence as cinema as mm-hmm. artifice um it feels a little less real and more like um wishful thinking just about what could have been for these other people i don't know even that yeah. feels a little queasy as i say it well, I, I, no, i'm still wrestling with I, it but there's a there's I, I don't have it in front of me but it's essentially what greta said um introducing him for that best director award that i told you about previously off the air um you know Tar- disagree all, all you want about what Tarantino's movies are, whether or not you like them. But in his movies, we get to watch um, slave owners get murdered. We get to watch Hitler killed. We get to watch the the Manson murderers burned alive and and beaten to death. We get to have an imaginary world that is different and less macabre. Um, and I like those moments. I get all the other criticism, but to me, the first thing you have to say is that what he's trying to do is specifically what he's trying to do. And that is to save Sharon Tate and kill the murderers. That is to save as many humans as possible at the end of Inglorious Bastards and kill Hitler. That is to free these slaves and kill Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, and I like that. I like killing the villains. I like alternate history where we go back and there's someone we don't like who committed war crimes or crimes against humanity and we fucking kill them. And I I think that 
that you can get really heady and argue a bunch of stuff. But if at the bottom, you're not agreeing that Tarantino just wants to live in a world where these bad things didn't happen and his movies try to accomplish that, you're not even playing the same conversation. Right. Yeah, I am not feeling sorry for (laughs) Manson murderers in any way. There's just always the 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 glee with which he goes at it um that is always just not how i would do it <laughs> uh, let me put it that way it yeah. is it is more committed it is more intense than i can even imagine construing and yeah i don't know um it is violence kind of funny can be art in yeah yeah i don't know i'm I, I still enjoy this film a great deal, even if I haven't totally worked out all of that. We're fighting. Um, it's your number two. It's not right. even on my list. Right. Let's yeah. fight about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, you know, it has to do with... I want to watch it, it again, though. I really... Yeah. Me too. It, it has to do with just the knowledge that these um, people didn't make it to the, to the next decade and how precious various moments then become. Um... You know, whether it's Brad Pitt driving back to his trailer with his dog or Margot Robbie at the movie or one of my favorite scenes where you're just watching all of the marquees come on at Mm -hmm. night. That is such a great sequence, like the Cinerama and, uh, you know, little motels and that kind of of thing. It's just about, like, taking the time to look at those things um, um, while you can. Um, And, uh, yeah. It's, I, yeah, one of my favorite Tarantinos for sure. It, it could be in my top 10. I haven't rewatched it uh, enough and I haven't had enough time. It's a movie that I still need more time with. I didn't like it my first watch the second time I came way up on it. I just need more time. Uh, my number two is Trey Edward Schultz's loved it comes at night i really enjoyed Cresha. didn't see it the year it came out i saw waves the year it came out and i saw it in a theater and i had the best time um in a theater i'd already seen climax not in a theater when i first saw it uh so for me this one was one of the most special first time viewings in that dark theater um I kind of had to put on a cocoon. I was wearing a sweater and I had to put my hood up at one point and I tightened it and I just kind of, uh, fell into my body during, um, the first half, um, the, these sequences and their ability to work together, but be so different and then call back to each other at the end. Um, Trey is, one of my favorite directors definitely in my top five directors um this year and i can't believe how talented he is completely support the pick ask me tomorrow and it'll be on there like many other movies 
Descending Order, favorite classic film discovery. Things we watched for or on accident for the show um, in Descending Order. What's your number three? My number three is... Sherlock Jr. by Buster Keaton. Yes. From 1924, which I'm almost laughing saying that. <laughs> so in 2019. Yeah. But I love this movie. We did a mini Keaton marathon. Uh-huh. And this was one of my favorites uh, of, of the ones we watched. Um, we watched a couple features, a couple shorts. Um, this one is where Keaton plays a film projectionist who gets framed by his rival for stealing his girlfriend or stealing his girlfriend's father's watch. And, uh, he's a wannabe detective. He walks back after getting framed to his, uh, projection booth, falls asleep and dreams of himself crossing over into the movie plane below and becoming the more capable detective Sherlock Jr. Um, I just thought this captures all the magic of silent cinema for me. It's funny it's clever it's just plain magical and it's in its tricks um i think it's about um both kind of the that, that tendency to imitate what we see in the movies we get that in that final scene where he's um mimicking the romantic lead in the movie playing below as he's with his lover um and about that desire to kind of want to be in the movies since he literally crosses over into it uh i loved it sherlock jr What's your number three? My number three was my number one halfway through the year. My number three is Bob Fosse's... How do you people really feel about doing it? (laughs) Isn't that about the dirtiest thing we could do to each other? He was a comic, a cynic, a satirist, a criminal, a genius. Lenny, starring Dustin Hoffman as the title character or titular character. Uh, Lenny Bruce, the... um, abrasive acerbic comedian who uh challenged freedom of speech laws and paved the way for george carlin to do what george carlin did um i like almost every single gosh darn thing about this movie and um i would encourage anyone that didn't already listen to the episode and want to watch it um go watch it listen to the episode where we talk about it and a few other from fossey because it is uh it's a it's a great little film. Uh, what is your number two? My number two is... The New World from Terrence Malick, 2005 film. Your number two is my number one Terrence Malick film. Oh, it is my favorite Terrence Malick film as well. Um, I had never seen The Tree of Life until this year when I watched it for Best of the Decade homework. Uh, Enjoyed it a great deal. Uh, Kind of no surprise there, but uh, The the New World remains my favorite. Um, It's this... um, The New World director's cut. We'll abbreviate it there. We both watched the director's cut on the episode on which we discussed it. Um, 
it feels like a Terrence Malick movie in every way because of how the camera is floating and the editing is, um, you know, done so poetically. Um, I like the specificity of the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, it's historicalness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. It's weird to summarize Terrence Malick in like a couple sentences, I guess. Um, but I think, yeah, the, the performances are great from Colin Farrell. I think it has the poetry that we've come to expect from his kind of late period work while also having a, an arc to it. Um, and it's just that meeting of poetry and prose that I think makes this story of the founding of America very beautiful and romantic at the same time that it's troubling. He doesn't overlook any of that at all. Um, the New World by Terrence Malick. That's my number two. What is yours? My number two is a film that you and Gabby both strongly loved. My number two is Pierre Paolo Pasolini's. Salo or The 120 Days of Saddam. This is one of the highest expectations I've had going into a film, living up to that and exceeding it at some level. Um, Previously, this was my number one classic film. Um, I just had to think, and I, I move it down only because the other one that we'll talk about momentarily is so special to me. Um, but so is this film and I wish I could encourage anyone to watch it. Um, I can't, um, my number one favorite film of the year is going to be a little bit similar and that I, I can't really recommend people go watch it, um, with, with good faith, um, unless you're a little bit, um, intrigued by the nature of, of humans depravity like I am, but, uh, Solo and, uh, Pasolini's way of presenting this is uh truly fascinating and i would encourage anyone who wants to to see it but if you don't even if you're like i don't know maybe don't (laughs) fun movie watch it with the family (laughs) watch it with your grandparents (laughs) all right michael what's your number one classic film discovery this year that is magnificently told against the lavish background of the affluent society of present-day Europe. La Ventura, unfolding in vividly etched scenes of unprecedented pictorial splendor and sensuality, the lives of a group of unsettled people in a constant, never-ending search for spiritual and physical fulfillment. La Ventura, from Michelangelo Antonioni. That's a fantastic uh, film. 1960 film is about... These are all, like, my favorite films. They right? just were my own discoveries, same, yeah. Two are from the same episode where we had three f- five-star films each, I yes. believe. But uh, neither of us wanted to put that other one that is acerbic on ours. <laughs> no need to extensively recap a movie that came out in 1960. It's about some upper... It's a, about a group of upper-class individuals who go on a boating trip together when one of them mysteriously inexplicably disappears and the friend of the disappeared woman starts a relationship up with the man who was dating said 
disappeared woman. Um, it's about, you know, all the things people describe Antonio as being about alienation and loneliness and um, emptiness. And it's just, you know, impeccably directed and formally just next level. It's a great movie. It's shot on location. It's fantastic. Um, my number one classic discovery of the year is the 1962 Sidney Lumet adaptation of Eugene O'Neill's play. Sunday, when the Blessed Virgin Mary forgives me and gives me back the faith in her love and pity I used to have in my convent days. And I can pray to her again. Long Day's Journey in Tonight, which I watched before we watched Long Day's Journey in Tonight Chinese 2018. It turns out they have nothing in common. But I do get to say this is my favorite classic accidental discovery of the year. I watched it for some homework for the show. Didn't realize I was totally wrong. Got to see Catherine Hepburn put on one of the best performances I've ever seen from an actress. Um, I can't say enough great things. If you want to watch peak cinema in the 60s and you don't know where to start and you just want a blind recommendation that you might not get anywhere else, Here's my recommendation. Long Day's Journey in Tonight. It's a Eugene O'Neill play, and it's from the very capable, very masterful director, Sidney Lumet. And you get to see a Hepburn while you're at it, so enjoy. A happy accident. I like it. It sure was. Uh, your number one, the the empirically best, uh, 9 out of 10 dentist approved, number one film of 2019, Michael. What is it? It's one that has not come up on the episode at all yet, and that is... Very special, Jerry. I don't think I am. Oh, no, you don't think you are. Very normal, really. You're not normal at all. I feel as though I want to not not live my whole life in this very privileged um, part of the world I come from. I want to be really aware about what's going on around me. Sorry, sorry. We can all be sincere, but um, what's it all for? The Souvenir by... Joanna Hogg, a British filmmaker. Uh, I watched this again a couple days ago. No reservations. This is my favorite movie of 2019. Um, it is a semi-autobiographical drama about Joanna Hogg's own experiences as a film student in 1980s Britain when she was um, struggling to find her voice as an artist and getting swept up in a very toxic relationship with and a, having a hard time getting money from her mother <laughs> true played by tilda swinton her mother <laughs> a very solid supporting role the lead character julie hogg's stand-in essentially is played by honor swinton Byrne, tilda swinton's daughter um remains one of my favorite performances of the year um i love the elliptical flow of it the static shots that let us just kind of watch this dynamic between julie and her terrible boyfriend um as they as they hang out in her apartment and restaurants and a gallery um i 
hated Anthony too much on first viewing to kind of appreciate the performance by Tom Burke. Um, some of the subtle expressions he has that are so condescending and pretentious. <laughs> it is wild, but they're really good. I, I did laugh a couple times watching this. I was like, wow, he is so wildly pretentious. It's incredible. Um, but, you know, this is not to be mistaken for a comedy. I think it is a wrenchingly honest uh, work of self-reflection. And it feels just so private and intimate and generous for sharing with us something so kind of awful and it's not self-pitying but it feels very humble you know i like these scenes where we're seeing julie struggle to articulate to her teachers what it is she wants to accomplish um with her movies and how she's stuck in this relationship maybe partly because he so withholds any kind of praise um for her work that she maybe kind of wants that validation as someone who's still kind of insecure about their work. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think it's about part, it's, it's about what this movie kind of withholds from us about their relationship that makes it so kind of involving. It's kind of fragmented. You're putting the pieces together yourself. That's, that's very kind of satisfying, even though it is so sad. Um, and part two is coming hopefully in 2020. I'm not quite sure what the status of that is. I am fascinated and terrified to see where it goes. When you love something, you kind of just want it to like stop, let it be, um, be what I, you are. Let me love you forever. Yeah, exactly. I, uh, uh, wholeheartedly love it. It's my number one by a good stretch. What is your favorite movie of 2019? My favorite movie of 2019 internationally came out in 2018, and we've already talked about it a few times, and that is Gaspar Noé's... <laughs> oh, you're so good. You like it? I'm so happy. I couldn't be happier. <laughs> <laughs> Climax. This is one of the most uh, engaging, most technically proficient, um, affecting and affecting experiences I've ever had in film. It's one of the juiciest um, things to discuss in the whole year of film. Uh, you, you could just pick a single scene and dissect it for hours and, and come out totally different and then move on to the next three minute dance sequence and have totally different interpretations. It, oh, it opens on its end, which is a murderer dying and it, it just never lets up. It's relentless. People catch on fire. Children are electrocuted to death. Whoa. Um, it's just a great and hard film. It is a Gaspar Noé film. And um, I 
really hope that 2020 has anything close to touching how good this was or how good Waves was because the these are two of these are two bangers and it, it was hard for me to put Waves under Climax but I I've seen Climax three times now um and it only improves for me um no way to me is what Kubrick is to other people um he's not only masterful technically he actually has something to say to me about the nature of man and empathy in a a way that I appreciate more than Kubrick's tone um I just think there's more happening there and and he's another top five director for me working today um and releasing this year and if you want to watch a banger turn on amazon prime for free click climax and good luck because like i said previously with solo i can't recommend this to anybody but i just did to you so good luck best of luck people (laughs) i will watch that opening sequence any day anytime yeah that is one of the opening sequence where she's crawling around dying in the snow no, the dance. Come on. Oh, that's like twenty minutes into the movie. Well, okay. <laughs> it is it really. I feel like it. It's pretty far in. Why does it feel like the beginning? Maybe that's just when I was most. Because that's when it feels like the beginning. That's why it's such a good movie. That's right. You it get messes the, with your sense of time. You get the intro to each dancer on the television uh-huh. first. I forgot about that. What would that's you right. do if you couldn't dance? Suicide. It's a commitment to their art. Mm-hmm. All right. We're about to close it out. Last but not least, top three technically beautiful films. This is, as you described earlier, my catch-all. Oh, yeah. Let's start with your number three catch-all for film. For me, it's sort of like below-the-line excellence. Those other crew members who I thought excelled at whatever it is they do. My number three is Long Day's Journey Into Night. I loved that movie, the 1962 Sidney LeMay, Eugene O'Neill adaption. The other one. Oh, boo. The other one. 2019. <laughs> which uh, has this 55-minute or so long take in the second half of the movie. Um, one of the most impressive shots I've seen in a cinema all year, for yeah, sure. There's, yeah, a point where the camera is switched over to a drone, and there's... Just all, all kinds of kinds of crazy movement to it um, that just feels so much uh, so dreamlike. Um, it is not the Emmanuel Lubetsky kind Wait, of tracking shot. The descent shot. was a drone. I actually, I should clarify. I don't know that for sure. There is just a portion of the long take where the camera takes flight. Where the camera is in the air. I won't say it takes flight. I don't know that it took flight. That could be. Because he's on the line sliding in front of it. And I don't know that it's not connected to that line on like an auto track. That is entirely possible. I have not done my research for how exactly this was pulled off. Um, But for a movie that is just interested in recreating the sensation of a dream, I think it is wildly appropriate and successful. Uh, That's my number three. What is yours? My number three is, uh, well, my list is very different than yours in that it's just what I think it should be, not a catch-all. My number three is Martin Sorsese's The Irishman, because I believe that the technical achievements made with the visual effects, as well as the incredible camera work, um, the lighting, 
other than the one scene that I complained about in the episode. Um, it's it's all next level, and to me, it, it's technically beautiful, and I, I can't put anything above it um, I, other than the two that I have above it, personally. So, Irishman, it's number three against my own will, but there you go. What's your number two? We're not done with it yet, but my number two is not The Irishman. It is Dark Waters by Todd Haynes for Ed Lockman's cinematography. It's beautiful. I could have picked 10 other movies whose cinematography I love just as much, but this movie has not gotten as nearly as much love as it you should have any? gotten. It's flown under the radar, to say the least. Um, but Ed Lockman's cinematography just gives this movie this toxic look that is so perfect for the material this story of a corporate uh, defense attorney who goes on the offensive against dupont chemical for poisoning the water supply um in a in numerous small towns in virginia and discovers more um there are just dozens of shots in this movie that i i think are so evocative of um disease and rot there's a scene where mark ruffalo's character is in a restaurant with a guy who's teaching him a little bit about the chemicals dupont uses and there's this yellow light uh above the bar in the restaurant that just looks so kind of like rotten or something i don't know there's just so much texture to this movie that i think has been written off as conventional by people who probably haven't even seen it because hardly anybody saw this movie you and i both said that when we did first impressions so we we can't say that we we did the same thing we were wrong though and everybody should try it you are absolutely right um the the trailer did it it zero favors yeah yeah um but it's a good looking it should have just done a single take honestly yeah. A single 30-second take with Mark Ruffalo having a shaking hand or something. Um, my number two is James Gray's Ad Astra, uh, specifically for Hoyte von Hoytema's cinematography, which was otherworldly, but also deeply grounded in a humanistic texture. Um, it's, you know... If he makes a movie, I like how it looks. I'll just put it that way. I might not like the movie. Uh, There's a few instances of movies he's shot that I don't like, but kind of like Deacon's, I can at least like how it looks. Um, And I like how Ad Astra looks, and I love the movie. Um, It's special, and the way that the moon chase scene was shot, I just, it was, it's uncanny. And I I think, contrary to most people that, that is an achievement, not a flaw. You went very big. I am going much smaller. Ultra small. With costume design in The Irishman. Mm. I could rewatch this movie and just like watch what all these characters are wearing from the suits that all these... Joe you know, Pesci's pants, right? What they're wearing at different ages of mm-hmm. their life. Um, the tie clips, those glasses Pesci has. The hats. Um the, the, yeah, the fedora he's wearing at the gas station. It plays a literal role in a meeting where Pacino says, you wear shorts to a meeting like this. And Tony Pro's wearing that Hawaiian shirt. Um, yeah, I just think it's all, you know, so purposefully designed. Um, and, uh, you know, the jewelry the women are wearing. Um, and, you know, 
how it's sort of in, indicative of how all these people have different roles in this world of the mob. Um, I just thought it was so much fun to look at. Um, it's great costume design in The Irishman. It is. So that was your number one. <sighs> Closing it out. My number one, similar to my previous number one, and perhaps another number one, is Climax. What? <laughs> uh, this specifically is for uh, Benoit Deby's uh, cinematography, as well as the choreography that we see from Nina. Um, I can't pronounce her name correctly, but I can certainly make an attempt. Manelli. Um, and the combination of what are both essentially pieces of choreography between the cinematography and the choreography of the dancers is, I mean, it is the film. Um, of course it's under the direct supervision of Noé and he really has a keen eye for movement, um, and luridity in the lens, but the twists and the turns of the camera in conjunction with when bodies flip over and begin walking backwards upside down like crabs or when people catch on fire and begin shrieking or when someone attempts to kill themselves um there's just a constant movement um that i i think is the only pace that i liked more that was as fast as uncut gems um it's it's one of those few things that has that pace and to do the choreography that it does at that pace. Um, you know, that's why it's number one for me and in so many categories, but specifically number one film of 2019. I hope you feel good about that because that concludes our conversation on the year in movies in 2019. I I feel as good as I can feel about the end of a year the end of cinema um but there's a whole nother year there's a whole nother decade of cinema coming up and yeah i, th I think that our list is nine out of ten densest approved so we'll be back for more movies next week <sighs> run go get to the chopper we have to go i'm coming with you that was brilliant. You're the best and we love you! And that's another year in the can.